So let's read 1 John chapter 1 together. Let's hear the word of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is a message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. Amen. We give thanks to God for that reading from his holy word. Our God and our Father, may it indeed be true that having contemplated your word, by faith we would see and hear the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in his name. Amen. Well, most of you know that when I came into the ministry, I was following in my father's footsteps. What you might not know is that as well as being a pastor, my father was also a qualified driving instructor because the church that he was pastoring was so small and the uh, the offerings weren't really enough to sustain uh, his income. And so to supplement his income, he had his own one-man driving school. So I want to tell you, the kind of pupil that my father dreaded the most. Who were the nightmare pupils? Alan Court, who are the nightmare pupils? (laughs) The nightmare pupils are those who think they can drive already. Would you agree with that, Alan? Those who had been given informal lessons, maybe by their dad or their uncle or their boyfriend, and they were coming just for a few lessons before their test to make sure that they were doing everything according to the book. And the problem always was that they weren't. They weren't doing everything by the book. So it wasn't just a matter of teaching them how to drive properly. It was a matter of unteaching them all the bad habits that they had picked up. Like staying in gear at the stop signs or driving with one hand on the wheel. It's hard enough to learn to drive without having to unlearn all your bad habits. Now, there is a sense in which becoming a Christian means unlearning some, if not all, that you've been taught from childhood. For example, if you have been raised in a family where it's considered all right to lie your way out of trouble, you have to unlearn that habit and learn that Christians always tell the truth no matter how inconvenient the truth might be. Indeed, actually, the very act of confessing our sin is an admission that we're not perfect, isn't it? That all is not as it should be. Another example, if you've grown up 
in a family where you're taught to believe that history only remembers the winners. Or that beauty is actually more than skin deep. That, that beauty is very, very important. Or that humility is for wimps. And don't get mad, get even. If you've been brought up in that kind of family, that kind of atmosphere, then coming into God's kingdom is going to be a bit of a culture shock, isn't it? The wonderful thing is that when we surrender to Christ, his Holy Spirit enters, enters our lives, and starts working away on us. We're like an overgrown, neglected garden, full of weeds and litter. And the Holy Spirit begins his work, restoring us into something more like the Garden of Eden. Of course, the length of time it takes will depend on how cooperative we are with the Holy Spirit. It will depend on how willing we are to expose our lives to the scrutiny of God's Word. How willing we are to allow this, the, the Holy Spirit to, to mold us and to shape us. But always the aim in mind is that we should be like Jesus. We should be more like Jesus. And part of that process will involve unlearning some things, unlearning certain habits, certain attitudes. It may actually mean letting go of a dream or an ambition. And it's not easy. But we always therefore have to remember that what our Heavenly Father wants for us is infinitely better than anything we have ever wanted for ourselves. These three letters at the end of the New Testament, we know them as 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, they were written to churches where some were finding it hard to let go of old habits, to let go of old thought processes. We have to imagine what the world was like 2,000 years ago. That was a world, there were no church buildings in those days. The vast majority of people had never heard of Jesus Christ. This was a world where most people believed in invisible gods and spirits controlling the world, controlling their lives. You might think it's hard to evangelize in 21st century Scotland. But remember that the apostles preached a gospel into a context where what they were saying was completely new. Radically revolutionary new. Becoming a Christian then meant unlearning everything you had been taught was true. This was indeed a world where might was right. Where humility was a bad word. Humility was a sign of weakness. This was a world where owning another human being was perfectly normal. This was a world, believe it or not, where people were forced to fight to the death as part of public entertainment. That is the world of the apostles, the world of the New Testament. Loving your enemy, forgiving those who had wronged you, playing the servant... Foreign concepts. Foreign concepts. As was the idea that what you believed and how you lived impacted on your relationship with the one and only true God. So it's no wonder when you think about it that so much space is taken up in the apostolic letters about correcting wrong ideas. Wrong ideas about faith and grace and salvation. Wrong ideas about God and the Lord Jesus. Wrong ideas about the consequences of sin. And this is true of this first letter of the Apostle John. Clearly he is writing to people 
who have wrong ideas. They've got wrong ideas about sin. We read that in chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. They have wrong ideas about the necessity of obeying Christ's commandments. It says in chapter 2, verse 4, The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. They had wrong ideas about the Lord Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. They had wrong ideas about the nature of true love. Chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. John in this letter is warning against those who who would lead the church astray. He says that in chapter 2 verse 26. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. He's writing to people who have wrong ideas. Now I don't think I'm saying anything controversial tonight when I say that these are difficult days for the church in Scotland. But it's not just in Scotland, is it? The church in the West, in Europe, and in the United States, in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, the, the Western church is faced with a choice. And it is a choice between the world and its standards and the Bible and God's standards. And what do we see? Well, sadly, many churches are choosing to align themselves with the world in the deluded belief that this will win the world for Christ. Well, what it will win is the world's approval for that church, for those people, but it will not win unbelievers to Christ. So what I'm wanting to do this evening, as we enter this new year, I want us to return to this fundamental, (coughs) what are we about as a church? What is our purpose? What is our function? What is our remit? And I, I look to John to give me the answer. We exist to proclaim Jesus Christ, whom he calls the word of life. That's why we exist, to proclaim Jesus Christ. Now I just want to say a very quick word about the authorship of this letter. It is in fact anonymous. Unlike Paul and Peter, the the author doesn't identify himself. He doesn't say that it's from John. It doesn't follow the usual conventions of letter writing in the ancient world. There's no personal greetings here. No names are mentioned, as often there is in Paul's letters. It actually comes across more like a sermon than a letter. But we refer to it as First John because that belief that it was written by the Apostle John is a very, very old belief. The early church accepted that this was from the Apostle John. And there were good reasons for that. You look at the opening verses and it claims to be written by someone who knew the Lord Jesus intimately, doesn't it? Someone who says they heard him and saw him and even touched Jesus. And so they claim the right to proclaim, to preach what they know. And I, I am convinced that is a claim of an apostle. Heard Jesus, knew Jesus, saw Jesus, lived with Jesus. And, and then it's also the style of this letter. It's very, very similar to the Gospel of John. The vocabulary, the turn of phrase, the subject matter. The suggestion is, and it's very obvious, that whoever wrote the Gospel of John also wrote these three letters. So that's why I'm referring to the author as the Apostle John. That's the technical bit. Look at those opening four verses for me, please. 
And what we notice about these opening four verses is how much repetition there is. Just four short verses. So much repetition. Heard. Seen. Looked at. Touched. Four times John talks about seeing or looking. He talks about life. The word of life, eternal life. He talks about appearing. The life appeared, appeared to us. He talks about proclaiming. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Now, when someone keeps repeating something to you, what do we conclude? When someone says to you, have I told you about so-and-so? Have I told you such and such? And they have, and they've told you that several times already. What do you conclude? Well, you might think to yourself, they're very forgetful. Okay, that might be the truth. But is it also not the case that if they want to keep repeating something to you, it's important to them? They want to make sure that you've heard it. It's so important that they keep telling you the same thing, even at the risk of repeating themselves. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim. Being with Jesus was the most momentous experience of John's life. It was life-changing. It was an experience so profound that John, like the other apostles, just could not keep it to themselves. We read in Acts chapter 4, that when the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, ordered the apostles to stop preaching, what did they say? They declared, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Acts 4 verse 20. They couldn't help it. The urge was irresistible. They were compelled to speak about Jesus. I'd love to sit John down and ask him, what was it that you heard that was so captivating? What was it that you saw that left such an indelible impression upon your eyes? What was it that you touched that changed your life forever? Oh, says John, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water. Thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this world's dark light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise and all thy day be bright. That's what I heard Jesus say. Okay, John, tell us more. What did you see, John? What did you see? I saw the steward at the wedding feast plunge his cup into those jars which had been filled with water. And he drew out wine. The best wine ever. I saw five loaves and two fish feed, wait for it, 5,000 people. And I saw the 12 baskets of leftovers. I stood at the grave of Lazarus and I saw him walk out, shroud and all. What else, John? What else did you see? I saw them crucify Jesus. I saw the soldier's javelin thrust into his side. And I saw the water and the blood gush out from the wound. I saw Jesus die. 
And, says John, I saw the empty tomb. I saw the stone rolled away. I looked inside. The grave clothes were there, but there was no body. That's what I saw. What did you touch, John? What did you touch? In the upper room, on the third day after his death, Jesus stood among us, and we were terrified. Terrified, we thought it was a ghost. And Jesus said to us, this is Luke chapter 24, verse 38. Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet, it is myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So I touched, I touched his nail-pierced hands. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it. That's what John is doing here. He is testifying. He is witnessing. Well, isn't that what the Lord Jesus commissioned his apostles to do? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. His witnesses. Why this commission? To be Christ's witnesses. Why? Because... While their visual, audible, and tangible experience of Jesus was unique, their experience of knowing Jesus is not unique. They saw, they heard, they touched. Unique. Knowing Jesus. Not unique. This is what John is saying here in verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. You can have what we had. That's what John is saying. This message that we preach is not like old soldiers recalling their memories of the war so that future generations can somehow relive the experience through them. No. You can have what we had. Fellowship with us, he says. That word, kainonia, is all about a shared experience. We sometimes think to ourselves, don't we? Oh, it would have been wonderful to see Jesus. How wonderful to have sat on the shore of Lake Galilee and heard Jesus teach, hear it from his own lips. Oh, what a difference that would make to my faith. That would strengthen my faith so much more. But you're forgetting. You're forgetting the Lord's parable of the sower, aren't you? There were those who heard Jesus preach, and whose words fell, as it were, upon a path, and were quickly snatched up by the birds, in one ear and out the other. People who heard Jesus. There were others for whom the seed fell upon shallow soil or thorny ground. Oh, they liked what they heard, but it didn't last. 
trouble, persecution, everyday worries soon strangled whatever joy and contentment they had from hearing Christ's message. They hurt. Didn't make a whit of difference to their faith. We also forget the Lord's rebuke to Thomas, don't we? John 20 verse 29. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. What John had, what Peter had, what Andrew and James and the rest of them had, friends, we can have. We can have today. 7th of January 2024, we can have it. How? How is that possible? How is something, someone who existed 2,000 years ago, how can he be part and parcel of our lives today? How is that possible? But look what John says at the very start. That which was from the beginning. Now that is reminiscent of the opening of John's gospel, isn't it? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That which was from the beginning. I want to suggest there are two levels to what John is saying here. First of all, he is claiming that what he is preaching there and then, at the end of his life we presume, is the same message that he proclaimed when he was a younger man. He's going back to the beginning, the beginning of that movement that we call Christianity. He is proclaiming what he saw and heard and looked at and touched. And he's saying, I haven't changed anything about Jesus. That which was in the beginning. I haven't reshaped Jesus. I haven't turned him into something more contemporary. Something more acceptable to my pagan hearers. I haven't altered Christ's message to make it more palatable or make it less offensive. That which was in the beginning. He says later on in chapter 2 verse 24. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. So don't mess about with this message. Don't chop and change it to suit yourselves. As it was in the beginning, so is now. That's what John is saying. I think there's another level. Perhaps a slightly deeper level. That which was from the beginning, because that also is an echo of Genesis 1 verse 1, isn't it? The very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is reminding us that the Lord Jesus is the eternal Son. Well, we get that in his gospel as well. John 1 verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So he's saying that the eternal one broke into time, broke into human history. He came to bring life, to bring eternal life. Think about how often the Lord Jesus spoke about himself in terms of life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of life. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. John says here, the life appeared. So why is it possible to know Jesus now? Because the Lord Jesus is not trapped in time or space. He is the living Lord Jesus. And he bursts forth from the pages of this book. And he offers us life. Life filled with the knowledge of God. That's how we can know him. We can say, we know Jesus. We know Jesus that John knew. We know Jesus as the first Christians knew him. We know the Jesus that believing men and women down through the centuries have known. We know him whom to know is eternal life. 
we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. We can have what the apostles had. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Here, it's human longing, human yearning fulfilled. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Or Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in the dry and weary land where there is no water. The longing, the yearning, made a reality. But the Lord Jesus himself said, it's in John 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Fellowship. Fellowship with the Father. Fellowship with the Son. Our Lord Jesus. And John says, we write this to make our joy complete. To make our joy complete. In Greek as well as in English, the difference between our and your is just one letter. And it might be possible that John actually wrote, we write this to make your joy complete. Our joy, your joy. I don't think it makes any practical difference, does it? Our joy, your joy. Because the thought of others enjoying fellowship with the Father and the Son, that would have filled John with joy. You see, my friends, the gospel message, it's not just for us and was like us. There is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And there should be joy in the heart of every believer as well. And without a doubt, my friends, there is joy when we surrender to Christ, when we enter into that fellowship with Christ. I was thinking about C.S. Lewis, you know, the author who's most famous for his Narnia Chronicles. He wrote an autobiography and he entitled it Surprised by Joy. You see, he had been an atheist. And what surprised him most about his conversion to Christ was the joy, the overwhelming sense of joy. I'm reminded how in John 17, verse 13, when the Lord Jesus is praying to his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son, the full measure of my joy within them. Friends, we live in a Scotland where wrong thinking has taken root. And you know, when I say wrong thinking, I don't just mean unbiblical thinking. Actually, it's illogical thinking. It's irrational thinking. It's thinking that ignores the facts of biology, that discounts the reality of the human body. It's thinking that treats children as adults and adults as children. It's thinking that demands its rights, but doesn't want to hear anything about responsibilities. Wrong thinking. But of course, these are just symptoms, aren't they? These are symptoms of the thinking that says there is no God. There is no creator. There is no judge. There is no one to whom we are ultimately or eternally accountable. And let me tell you tonight, that's why the world needs the church. 
That's why the world needs us. Needs us to be proclaiming the word of life. It's easy to be despondent. It's easy to be discouraged. But you know what? If you have any knowledge of history, you will know that there are times in the past that have been just, seemed just as hopeless, just as helpless. We are not living in unprecedented times. There are times in history when the gospel of Jesus Christ has transformed thinking. And not just the thinking of individuals, but the thinking of whole communities and even of nations. That's what happened here during the Reformation and in later centuries through revivals. So we shouldn't be defeatist. We shouldn't be resigned to the eventual disappearance of the church in Scotland. Instead, my friends, my New Year's message to you is this. That in faith, we turn to our neighbours, our colleagues, our family. And we say to them, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. So that you may have fellowship with us. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we give you our most grateful and humble thanks. That the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed the same yesterday, today and forever. And what the apostles preached and proclaimed about the word of life, we can know as well. And we thank you too, Heavenly Father, for that wonderful hope and expectation that we have. That a day is coming when we will see Jesus and we will hear his voice. We will see those, those wounds, those wounds displayed so beautifully. Lord God, we pray that you will enable us to live as those who demonstrate to the world around us that they can know Jesus, the transforming Jesus. And this we pray in his holy name. Amen.